Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. From chapter 19. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He laid his hands on them and went away. Father, as we, your children, receive your word and think about the regard that Jesus shows to children in this passage, we pray that you would open our eyes and help us to see what our Lord is teaching us, help us to live it out more fully. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I hope that this church, Grace, will always be a place where it is okay for people to have questions, and it's okay for people who have questions to ask those questions out loud. Having said that, I'd like to think that if I were here when the disciples were posing their question to Jesus, I might have said, you know, guys, this might not be the right question. This might not be the kind of thing you want to ask out loud. Because, I mean, this question is a little bit revealing. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they want to know? Who is the greatest? Is it me? Is it me? That's the sort of thing uh, you don't want to say out loud. I come from the South, where pride is more of a virtue than it is a fault. But when I moved to the upper Midwest, I discovered that a lot of things that I thought were normal are actually perceived as boastful, a little vainglorious. You don't brag about yourself. You don't go around asking Jesus, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Right? By definition, questions like that, you want to stay away from them. So as we read this passage and we see that question, it's easy for us, I think, to know that whatever happens afterwards, it's not going to go well for the disciples, right? There's going to be some kind of humbling that takes place. Jesus is going to take them down a few notches. Nothing that happens after this comes as a surprise. But you know, sometimes the right question reveals the wrong heart. And this question, although it seems like the wrong question to us, isn't actually as wrong as you think. Uh, This is not a question that comes out of the blue, Because we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel, we actually know there's a little bit of context for this. And if you remember what we've been seeing, even though it's subtle, I think you can understand why this might be a relevant question for the disciples to ask. I mean, generally speaking, we've already seen the disciples 
as Jesus's inner circle are perceived by the people around them as having a, a certain greatness to them, having an authority, right? There are people who, when they want help from Jesus, they go to his disciples in order to get it. The disciples have actually healed people by the power of Jesus, right? We've seen that happen as well. So it's not out of the blue that they might be wondering, well, how is all this stuff supposed to work? What is the the pecking order, so to speak, in the kingdom? Uh, We saw in chapter 17 at the end when people had questions about whether or not Jesus pays his taxes, they didn't go to Jesus. They went to Peter. And Peter, to answer them, didn't go to Jesus either. He answered them based on his own perception of things, which suggests that Peter has a sense that, that maybe he has a place in this order as well. And that perhaps is the reason that the other disciples would like some clarification. Uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom, Lord? And please, don't let it be Peter. Right? Um, what's going on here? Right? Because Jesus did make remarks, as we saw in Matthew 16, that suggested that Peter might be in charge, that it might be Peter who is the greatest, Peter that the keys to the kingdom were entrusted to. And so it makes sense that Peter might see himself in that light and that the others might have issues with it. We'll actually see in chapter 20, there are definitely people who think in the overall scheme of things, it shouldn't be Peter who's at the right hand of Jesus. We'll see a mom who thinks her sons would be better in that position. So this question doesn't come out of the blue, and it's also not the wrong question on its face in the sense that that, uh, they're asking something they shouldn't be asking, because Jesus, he does answer their question. Like, Jesus doesn't turn this question aside or deflect it. He doesn't say, hey guys, clearly you shouldn't be asking questions like this. Jesus does literally answer the question, who is greatest in the kingdom? He says the greatest are those who humble themselves like a child. Right. So he does give them an answer, it's just not the answer that they're expecting, right? They've asked the right question, we might say, but in asking it, they've revealed that they have the wrong understanding of what it means to be great in the kingdom. Because the way that Jesus quantifies greatness seems to be the opposite of what they have in mind. Like, not only are they wrong, but Jesus says the thing they're wrong about is not inessential. This wrong conception they have of greatness is actually really important. It goes to the essence of the Gospel. He says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. You will never enter it, let alone rule in it with authority, let alone be great in it. That's the idea. So this is an important question to think about that wrong understanding they have is an important thing to confront because it's an understanding that we all too often share. It is wrong. It's the wrong way of thinking about greatness, but it's not wrong for the reason that you might think. Certainly not wrong for the reason that 21st century people might automatically assume. Right? This question about greatness isn't wrong because uh, Jesus is opposed to hierarchy. Right? In our age, our sort of egalitarian view of things, our American way of thinking about hierarchy, uh, we don't really like to think 
of some sort of hierarchy of authority. We prefer to think that everybody is equal. So if we hear a question, who is greatest, we automatically think, well, not you, you boastful person. We're all on the same level here. That's not Jesus' response. Like Jesus doesn't share that view of authority. In fact, even further, when we do reach Matthew 20 and, and the mom who wants her two sons to sit on either side of Jesus in the kingdom, Jesus asks this question of them. Do they think they can drink from his cup? And, and to me, I'd like to believe that if Jesus ever asked me that question, do you think you can drink from the cup that I'm drinking from? I would say, oh, no, of course not. Of course not. That's not what they say. They're like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And the funny thing is, Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, you can't. Jesus says, actually, you will. You will. It just doesn't mean what you think it means. So again, Jesus is not rebutting what they're saying for the reasons we might rebut them. He's doing it for different reasons that have to do with a failure to understand. Like the true problem with what they're asking is that they don't understand what greatness is. They define greatness, obviously, as, as we do, in terms of worldly things. Greatness is power. Greatness is domination. Greatness is exploitation of others. When in truth, in the kingdom, in the world that God created, greatness in the church consists in humility. It consists in service. And it consists in sacrifice. That's greatness, as Jesus defines it. So at the very foundation of the way we think, we aspire to the wrong things. We aspire to the wrong achievements, and we do it because we judge with the wrong criteria. In a sense, like the disciples, we despise the things that we should aspire to. And we aspire to what we should despise. And in this seemingly simple moment, Jesus exposes that fundamental problem. And he gives the answer. This to those who don't understand what greatness is, to those who are consumed with pride, the answer is to turn and to become. To turn and to become like children, Jesus says. But in what sense does Jesus mean that we must turn and become like children? That word turn, we've seen it already in our service. We saw it earlier in our assurance of pardon from Acts 3, that we should repent and turn from our sins. Turn shares a root with metanoia. It's this word used to talk about uh, conversion in theology, but it's literally an about-face. It's a turning away from the path we were traveling toward something else, something God has called us to. So if you're called to turn, the implication is that the way that you were thinking about and aspiring to greatness is not only wrong, but it's actually antithetical to life in the kingdom on earth, antithetical to life in the church. So we need to turn from pride in order to live as God's people in the church. We need to turn from works, from merit, from the accomplishments that we think ought to lead to greatness. 
in order to dwell in the church. And we ought to turn toward humility, turn toward grace. That's the about face that Jesus says is essential in order to enter into the kingdom. One commentator on this passage says, clearly a primary virtue of those who would be disciples, hence for those in the church, is a humility that marks them off radically from a world obsessed with the quest for greatness construed only as power and status. That understanding that in the church authority has to be different has all sorts of practical implications. One of them that's relevant to us as a church has to do with leaders. We have voted on candidates for office. And one of the things that we have to do in that process, and honestly, in any situation where someone takes on a leadership role, is to ask ourselves whether they aspire to it for the right reasons. People who want to serve should lead in the church. But people who want power, status, greatness, not so much. Because in order to lead in the church, you have to lead God's way. You have to understand authority God's way. We often say here that you cannot share what you haven't found. We don't expect you to share grace until you have found grace. Well, that applies here as well. cannot lead graciously until you have humbled yourself, until you have become like children. That phrase of Jesus' turn and become like children is referring to a transformation, obviously but a deeper transformation than you might realize. It's a transformation of being, not just a transformation of feeling. A few months ago, our confession of faith in our order of worship one Sunday came from 1 Corinthians 13. It's a passage where Paul talks about seeing Christ face to face. But he also talks about maturity. And as he does that, He reflects on the difference between childhood and adulthood. And he says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And after we did that, one of the young disciples at our church uh, raised a question. It's like, hey, wait a second. I'm one of those children and I feel a little insulted by the words of Paul. What do you mean put away childish things? Childish sounds like an insult. What's going on here? Doesn't Jesus say... If anything, you should be more like children. Isn't Paul counseling us to move in exactly the wrong direction, the opposite direction from Jesus? What's going on here? What does Paul mean? What does Jesus mean? How do those things fit together? That's what I want us to think about because I think in both cases, it's important to see the the deepness of the change that Jesus calls us to. So, First of all, note this, that Jesus seems to be concerned with a fundamentally different question than the disciples are concerned with and the question that we are often concerned with as well. Like, we do think a lot about greatness in the kingdom. Whereas Jesus here is focused on entering the kingdom in the first place. That's a huge difference. 
For us, humility, the idea of humbling yourself, that functions as a sort of portal or doorway. Like you humble yourself in order to get into, to enter into the kingdom. But once you're inside, then your priorities shift and now you need to busy yourself with the work that makes something of you. We don't want to be constantly reminded of our need for the cross. We want to be told what we need to do in order to be good Christians, by which we mean great Christians. Right? We want to be doing the work that will distinguish us in the eyes of God. But for Jesus, humility is not a door. Humility is the entire house. It's the whole structure. The most important question isn't, what do I do now that I'm here? The most important question is how to be in here. How to abide here. So Jesus isn't talking about a feeling of humility that He's asking us to work on. He's talking about a state of humility that we need to recognize and abide in. In other words, something more objective, less subjective. Not just about how we feel, but about how we are, how we exist. Also, note this, Jesus doesn't share our sentimental view of childhood. And I think this is important. If Jesus is saying you need to become like children, we assume we know what that means. But we don't always, because the way we think about childhood is a little different. Right? We say things like children are innocent. Children are innocent. So that must mean that in order to enter the kingdom, we need to cultivate a childlike innocence. We say we have so much to learn from the children. And so we tell ourselves that in order to enter the kingdom, we should cultivate a childlike wonder. If we sentimentalize childhood in this way, then when we hear Jesus' words, we may miss exactly what it is that he's telling us to do. Adults who aspire to a sentimental idea of childhood lack the Pauline maturity that 1 Corinthians 13 calls us to and wreak havoc on the world around them. Charles Dickens satirizes this idea like adults consumed with a sentimental view of childhood in his novel Bleak House, which it's really thick and I mention it often because I read it and I feel like I have to make that mean something. So I derive as many sermon illustrations from that book as I can. But there's a character in Bleak House called Harold Skimpole and he's really charming. Like when you're first introduced to him, you just think he is this quirky guy. Like he's like absent-minded. He can't take care of himself. He, he loses track of his money everything like that. He is always saying, I'm a mere child in the world. So innocent. Like so unstained by everyday concerns. But as you get to know this man over the course of the book, you realize he's one of the most destructive characters in the book. Because of his childlike innocence, he does not fulfill his responsibilities, his adult obligations. He abandons his family. He exploits all of his friends. And you come to realize that this man who seemed so charming, like such an ideal to aspire to, actually embodies something that, that is terrible, that he should grow up, that he should mature 
as an adult. Now, I don't have to tell you that these days this is a common problem, like adults who aspire to a childlike state. I had in my mind a whole sort of sub-point about adult tantruming, and I'm going to set that aside only because you're, you're too familiar with examples to need to be reminded. The point is this, like Jesus and Paul are both talking about an objective state, an objective fact about the state of childhood. There's something about childhood for them that's objective, not subjective. Like maturity is a condition of the state of adulthood by definition. In relation to children, adults are large, responsible, and understanding. Not absolutely, but in relation to children, they are mature. So Paul calls us, rightly, to mature in faith, not to neglect our responsibilities, to pursue greater understanding. Humility is a condition of the state of childhood. I'm not saying that children, uh, by nature, just tend to be humble. What I'm saying is being a child puts you in a position that is humble, right? Children are small. They are powerless in relation to adults. They are, in relation to adults, unable to grasp the mysteries of life or to tell when people are giving them plausible or implausible explanations for those things. That's what it's like to be a child, a a state of humility. And Jesus calls us, rightly, to recognize our state of humility, to acknowledge that we cannot grasp the mysterious ways of God or work to make ourselves great, but must instead rely on him. So these are encouragements to do more than feel mature or feel humble. Rather, we must live with maturity and live with humility. Now, to live does mean to do. These are things that we're meant to put into practice, but it's more than doing. It's it's doing, but it's more than doing because doing flows from something deeper. It flows from a state of being. Before we can do what we're called to do, we must turn and become. We must recognize the reality of what Christ is doing in us, and we must abide in it. It might be easier to understand this if we think not so much of ourselves, but of our hopes for other people. When you imagine people that you have hopes for, that you would like to see the gospel be real to them, and you imagine that person coming into this sanctuary and hearing the gospel proclaimed, and you think, what is it I want for my friend, my loved one? What do I want for them? When people come to grace, we want more than just to make them feel a certain way. In fact, we don't really think much about how we want people to feel. We don't emphasize making them do the right things either any more than we emphasize making them feel the right things. Because the feeling and the doing will flow from the being. So we emphasize being in Christ, something deeper. If you don't know him, if you're not in him, then manipulating your feelings is not going to change that. If you don't know him and you're not in him, then modifying your behavior isn't going to change that either. So our hope when the gospel is proclaimed is not that others will feel differently or even act differently. Our hope is that they will be changed, that they will be transformed, that they will be renewed. So our hope is not for for like a subjective resolve. It's for an objective work of Christ in them. 
and in you. My point is just that what you want for others, that's what Jesus wants for you. You can stop worrying about what you need to feel or do in order to be great in God's eyes. You can turn away from that, humble yourself, and just live with him. There's a question, though, that I think is important to think about because of the second text that we read, because that comes from chapter 19, after Jesus has already said these words. Right? He said to turn and become like children. He goes on to say that if you cause one of these children to sin, it would be better for you that these terrible things would happen to you. Like That's a bad thing, right? But after giving that warning, when children do come to him, the disciples actually get in the way. It's like they don't learn. If Jesus has made his priorities clear, why do they still despise the humble and aspire to greatness? Like, why doesn't that solve the problem? That's the question I want to think about. Why doesn't it settle things for them, and why doesn't it settle things for us? Jesus says of children, children in faith, those who humble themselves and come to him, the little ones who believe, he says, receive them and you receive me, but deceive them, cause them to stumble, and you answer to me. That's an encouraging word, a promise, but it's also a sobering warning right, to take this seriously. And yet the disciples turn around one chapter later, and it seems like they haven't listened. That They're doing exactly what they were told not to do. They're rebuking people for bringing children to Jesus. Like they're holding them back. They're putting up obstacles and barriers. They haven't humbled themselves, and now they're not welcoming the humble. Instead, in pride, they're throwing up these obstacles between the humble and Christ. That kind of contempt for the lowly and the humble and the small, that's a sign of sinful pride. We see that contempt in ourselves, we should recognize it as a red flag, as something to examine, to confess before God. Like, this is exactly the spirit that they've been told to turn from. And yet here we see another manifestation of that will to greatness, just in another way. They're not asking the question, who's the greatest? But they are acting on an assumption about greatness that is the same. So it raises the question, like, what is it exactly that drives people to ignore what Jesus is literally saying and to do it in the name of Jesus? You've witnessed this before. You've been guilty of it before. To take things that Jesus clearly tells us and to find some way of ignoring it and to tell yourself you're doing it for Jesus. That you're ignoring him for his own sake, as it were. That's what's happening here. If you try to get inside their heads and ask yourself, like, how could they be doing this? I think it's because in their minds, they're thinking something like this. Jesus has great things to do. Jesus has big work to do, and he needs to stay focused on that. He doesn't need distractions. In other words, it's a well-meaning error. They're trying to protect Jesus from the tyranny of the urgent. They're trying to help Jesus do what Stephen Covey says leaders need to do. Keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus is here to do big stuff. He's not going to be able to do that if all these little kids are constantly flocking around him. 
Jesus himself doesn't seem to get this. Jesus seems to have all the time in the world for these minor deeds, for these little miracles, for these tiny things that that aren't really moving the needle on the big stuff that people need from Jesus. So his disciples maybe feel some impatience. It's like we can't heal every blind man in the world. Like we actually do have a kingdom to establish. Like we do have some Romans to kick out. We do have this son of David stuff that you need to do. And uh, we're never going to get to Jerusalem at this rate. Right? They're trying to keep him focused on what they think the mission is. Get on with it. Do the big stuff, not more of the small stuff. This small stuff, these small people, they're distracting you from the mission. But when you think that way, when you become impatient with the pace that God is working in, because there are bigger things to do than the small stuff He seems focused on, you reveal that you have no idea what the mission really is. Jesus shows that He is here to sweat the small stuff. That Jesus may be on His way to Jerusalem to win this great victory and fulfill God's covenant promises, but He has time for these small, insignificant problems, these humblest of details. And I get it. Like I know they had to look at this, and I know that, that I probably would have felt as they did, this is beneath Him. He has bigger things to do. Like these kids, they couldn't get an audience with Herod. They couldn't just flock around Herod and distract him because he's a king. King Jesus is an even greater king, so come on. This makes no sense. right? This is beneath him. Which is exactly right. It is. It is literally beneath him. But the reality is that Jesus is here for what is beneath him. It is the whole point of why he is here. The redemption of the world is happening from the ground up. It's those small personal transformations that will one day overtake the world. And while we're worried about who's the greatest, Jesus is focused on the least of these. And if Jesus is here for the humble, why would you ever resist humility yourself? Why wouldn't you want to embrace humility So let's stop resisting humility and let's resist pride instead. Like this is a season for us as a church where big things are ahead of us. It's a season of big change. But let this be not a pursuit of greatness, but a time for greater humility. Let's not think about a bigger space. Let's not think about more people. Let's not think about growth in numbers. Let's think about growth in humility and through it, growth in grace. Let's push back against our pride by remembering our humble dependence on Christ. Let's look for opportunities to encourage one another and not to shine at one another's expense. Let's embrace a new spirit of service and sacrifice. If we're going to aspire to something, let's aspire to serve and to give. Let's make that our focus in this season. I don't want to look back on this time and remember it as the time when we started becoming great. 
I want to look back and say, this is where we came to him like we never had before. This is where we really became like him in new ways, where we realized who we are in him and what he is doing in us. And we decided to get real and follow him and be like him. I want it to be the time we look back and say, this is when we really followed him. In order to enter the world, Jesus had to humble himself. He became like children for our sake, literally. To lay the foundation of the church, he humbled himself by becoming, in the words of Philippians 2, obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. That was humbling. And it was from that humility that the Father raised him up to glory and gave him the name that is above all names. And there's no path to greatness in God's kingdom apart from this path, the one that Jesus traveled, the one that he calls us to, the path of humility. And if this is who Jesus is, if this is what Jesus did, then if we aspire to be with him and to belong with him, then surely we must turn and become like him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.